This week, if the human genome is a parts list... Now we're basically in a position to understand exactly what lacking each part means. And the scientist who became a politician. Running for public office is and was more difficult than getting my PhD in physics. Plus how new research on East Antarctica is ringing alarm bells. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 13th, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. The genome is often described as a parts list for building a body. In the human genome, the list has about 18,000 entries. But what if one part is removed, or in the scientific language, knocked out? Characterization of those knockouts um, have actually been one of the main tools for us to understand what any given gene in the genome actually does. This is Seiker Katharason, and he's talking about mice. Scientists can deliberately knock genes out in model organisms like the mouse, but now they're setting their sights on a knockout project for humans. Disclaimer, nobody is running around knocking out human genes as part of a grisly experiment. Geneticists are instead looking for naturally occurring human knockouts, people carrying genes that are completely non-functional. Cheaper and more widely deployable sequencing methods are making it possible to go looking for people who each have a different part missing. And now we're basically in a position to understand uh, exactly what lacking each part means. Seiko and his colleagues refer to this effort as the Human Knockout Project. Before it could start, there was some detective work to do. They had to find groups of people more likely to be carrying knocked-out genes. Everyone carries two copies of each of their genes, and for a gene to be completely knocked out, both copies of it need to be broken. A good place to look is in groups who are closely related, because here the chances are higher of both parents having a mutation in the same gene, and therefore passing two wonky copies onwards to their children. Seiker and his team knew that cultures where cousins marry cousins would be good places to look. Geneticists call cousin marriage consanguinity. And if you look at a map of consanguinity rates around the world, the highest rate is actually in Pakistan. The team contacted 10,000 participants and sequenced the bits of their genome that code for proteins. Nearly one in five of the participants had at least one gene knocked out. The team also had clinical data available on the heart health and metabolism of their participants. And when they looked for traits that correlated with the missing genes, they found a few surprises. Four participants in the study had no working copies of a gene called APOC3. Scientists are already interested in this gene, as they know from previous work that one missing copy can reduce the risk of heart disease by lowering levels of a dietary fat. But they didn't know if anyone could survive with both copies missing. On the line from Pakistan, geneticist Danish Solahin. These are the first apoc 3 human knockouts that have been discovered in the world. Because the team were able to recontact people who had been sequenced, they could go a few steps further than genetic studies usually can. They got back in touch with one participant living a couple of hours from Karachi in southern Pakistan. Here's Danish again. Uh, when we called back this participant, we noticed that you know he um, 
uh, was from a small isolated village um, and inhabitants of that village had been practicing consanguinity for several generations. His wife was also, who, who was his first cousin, you know, was a knockout. And as a result, you know, all of the nine children were also, you know, knockouts. This village helped the team address a question they had about APOC3. If missing one copy is good for fat metabolism, is missing both even better? To find out, they gave the volunteers a fat challenge. Basically a big milkshake. To see how they metabolised fat. Seiko Katharason again. And then measuring their blood for every, every hour for six hours afterwards, we saw that basically the group that completely lacked uh, the APOC3 gene, essentially there was no budge in the blood triglycerides after a meal, giving us confidence that actually this gene, when completely inhibited, um, is tolerated, that you know people are living, and that they have this favorable phenotype of actually not budging their blood fat after a meal. This study goes to show that not all knockouts are harmful, and it provides the team with a list of possible targets for improving heart disease. The latest study finds similar rates of knockouts as previous studies done in similar populations. Here's David Van Heel, who last year published a report on the genomes of people living in Bradford in the UK of Pakistani descent. So we sequenced 3,222 people uh, and we found 1,111 genotypes which were loss of function. And then we went on to study one single knockout of interest to us, which was a gene called PRDM9. This gene PRDM9 was thought to be lethal in animal models, uh, and we found a healthy mother with PRDM9 knocked out and uh, who has three healthy children. A cautionary note there for anyone assuming that mice are just little humans. Seiko Katharaisan thinks it should be possible in the next five to ten years to complete the human knockout project for every gene in the human genome that can tolerate being absent to find a person who is missing it. The two groups who've studied Pakistani genomes, plus others leading similar efforts elsewhere, plan to pool their data into one large catalogue. That would be a boon for the genetics community, but Danish Solahin, working with the participants in Pakistan, can see a couple of ways it already benefits the human knockouts themselves, especially those living with disease. It's sometimes, you know, uh, fairly difficult for these individuals to, you know, not understand what is causing the high rates of disease in them and in their loved ones. So just to know the cause, you know, first of all, you know, provides them a relief. And then second, you know, they do tell us that, you know, this is something that they are going to advocate in their families, in their immediate family members, as well as in the wider community mm-hmm. to, you know, reduce this practice of risk and marriages. David Van Heel cautions that studies like his are not trying to make a comment on cousin marriage itself. He points out that it's only in a handful of cases that knockouts cause severe disease, and other factors, like smoking in pregnancy or mothers being older, can lead to similar rates of genetic disorder. Thank you to David Van Heel and co-authors Sekar Katharaisan and Danish Solahin. Their paper is at nature.com slash nature, so is the news and views, and the catalogue of human knockouts will be available soon. In the research highlights, the creatures that edit their genetic instruction manual on the fly, and how a virus could trigger celiac disease. But first, 
Later this month, scientists all over the world will join the March for Science, taking to the streets to call on politicians to fund research and stand up for evidence-based policymaking. Scientists have tended to shy away from politics, but that could be changing. Things like the election of Donald Trump, a president who questions whether climate change is real, as well as talk of alternative facts and fake news, are motivating scientists to engage with politics and even run for political office. Noah Baker spoke to one scientist who ran a successful campaign and became an assemblyman. So first off, would you be able to let me know your name and your affiliation so we've got that on record? Sure. My name is Andrew Zwicker. And I'm a physicist at Princeton University. And you have another affiliation as well, I suppose. I'm also in my first term. I'm an assemblyman in the state of New Jersey representing the 16th legislative district. Now, that sort of gets to the, the core of the beginning of this story, which is why, why have you done this? Why do you have these two affiliations? Why switch from science to politics? So, and, and of course, I haven't switched completely. I actually have this wonderful life where I go back and forth between the world of science and the world of politics, sometimes multiple times in a single day. Uh, I got interested in this because there's a real connection between a government funding innovative things uh, and difficult things, projects that aren't ready for the private sector, and that, as a corollary, creating businesses and new inventions. Um, but what I saw also was that this idea, which has driven so much of uh, inventions in the 20th century in the United States, I felt like had been lost. So um, that was the first thing. The second was that uh, a colleague here at Princeton, he ran for Congress in New Jersey and won and became the second physicist ever elected to Congress. Uh, when he decided that it was time to move on to the, the next uh, phase of his life, um, I decided, why not run for Congress with no political experience whatsoever? Crazy idea, but I said I could, I could continue to complain uh, or I could try to do something about it. Uh, so I did, and I won because of the fact that I'm a scientist, uh, because I have made one promise, which is to run on a platform that says I will use evidence to make my decisions. And in the end, I'm saying I'm going to take a scientific approach as much as I can to politics. That's an approach that's worked for you in this case, but do you think that's an approach which standardly would be appealing to you know, an electorate to say that you're going to go for a scientific approach to the way you approach politics and, and, and decision making? I think it has such appeal. Um, most of the general public is very frustrated by the political process feel it's broken down. Uh, you know, here in the United States, it's felt that Democrats and Republicans no longer can work together on anything, and this goes well beyond this current administration. Um, and so this idea of saying, well, let's at least begin with a common set of facts, and then we can have a debate on what the, po the public policy implications are of those facts. While you know that's not always easy to do uh, in reality, as a philosophy, it absolutely is appealing across most political spectrums. So the question remains then: Why are there not more scientists in office? You know, why do you think you're one of the trailblazers in this area? Right. You know. Well, so I tell people that that running for public office is and was more difficult than getting my PhD in physics. 
Uh, and it is so different than what we as scientists do on a day-to-day basis. You know, a scientist makes a presentation of his or her work. They have a PowerPoint presentation behind them. They read the slides. Uh, you get some questions, you move on. In politics, there's no slides, uh, and people are asking you about their lives. And you're making decisions that can have an impact on thousands or tens of thousands or more, depending upon what level of politics you're at. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to, to make that transition, but it's so crucially important, in my opinion, that we have more scientists serving at all levels uh, of government because what a scientist is really good at is taking a large amount of information and, uh, and trying to solve a big problem and both absorbing it and coming up with a, a, a logical data-driven solution. Uh, and we just need more of that. Do you think that there's going to be more of a push for scientists to become involved in politics now? I think now, certainly, uh, you know, climate change in particular has driven more and more scientists to start to talk and write about public policy. Uh, and now we're seeing more people who want to run for office. I have, over the last weeks and months, actually had people from all over the country calling me uh, scientists asking, you know, how I did it, what I did, whatever advice I could give them, because uh, they're strongly considering doing the same thing. Now, you are currently working in this sort of sweet spot where you're still maintaining a role in a scientific institution as well as doing the political work you're doing. And that seems like quite a lot to do with your time. Do you think that this sort of conflict of trying to maintain two things might be a, a problem for scientists? Are they going to essentially have to leave their career if they want to move into politics? This is one of the biggest problems. I was already not in a full-time research career when, when I did this. I was doing a lot of science education work as well and, and public outreach. So, you know, for me, from there to politics, I had already taken a major step towards that. This is one of the biggest issues. You will have to give up a piece of your scientific career to do this. And for many scientists, you know, who have spent their life studying what they love, that's too much to ask. The, the flip side is you don't have to give up your entire scientific career and the, the potential both personal rewards and the impact that you can have on, on your community or your state or your country or your society is enormous. And so there are risks and there are rewards and each person is going to have to balance that and consider that carefully. That was physicist and politician Andrew Zwicker. You can read more about his route to office and how other scientists are engaging in politics in this week's careers section. Coming up, the region everyone thought was dependable and stable until they took a closer look. Before that, this won't take a minute. It's the Research Highlights with Sharmini Bundell. If DNA is an instruction manual, most animals follow it to the letter. They have to stick to it pretty closely as they use it to make RNA and then proteins. But some cephalopods, the group including squid and octopuses, they rip the manual apart. Scientists know they use enzymes to edit the RNA, producing proteins that look quite different from those encoded by the DNA. Now, scientists have found that this editing is particularly common in the more complex, cleverer cephalopods and in RNA sequences associated with brain function. The creatures can evolve not by rewriting the DNA itself, but by keeping the genome more static and tailoring it on the fly. That paper is in Cell. 
common virus could be partly to blame for celiac disease, where eating gluten triggers the immune system to attack the gut. Researchers fed mice a component of gluten and also infected some of them with a gastrobug called Riovirus. The infected mice had higher levels of inflammatory immune molecules in their intestines. When the mice also had a genetic predisposition to celiac disease, the Riovirus brought on gluten intolerance. The immune molecules seem to mistake gluten for a virus and that triggers the intolerance. The journal Science has that paper. What happens in Antarctica over the coming years will shape the world. Vast amounts of ice sit on top of land, and so there's enormous potential for sea level rise. For many years, all eyes have been on the West Antarctic ice sheet, where many glaciers are rapidly retreating. In contrast, East Antarctica seemed... Inert, cold, high, thick ice sheet uh, on top of mountainous bedrock. This is Taz Van Omen of the Australian Antarctic Division in Tasmania. He's been studying the icy continent for years. I started with the Antarctic Division in 1994, so that's quite a while now. And in that time, researchers have discovered that East Antarctica, a region the size of the United States of America, may not be as secure as previously hoped. Taz shared his thoughts on how the East Antarctic, and our understanding of it, have evolved. We've been flying airborne surveys now for nearly every year since 2008, building up uh, and filling in the gap, if you like. We now have a picture where large uh, portions of East Antarctica are more similar to the West, based on bedrock that goes deep below sea level. Um, so that raises the prospect, like West Antarctica, of an ice sheet that can't retreat from a warming ocean without the ocean following it inland. I didn't expect that in just a decade or so of my career to go from sort of this quest for knowledge through to a, a very acute question. It really made us sit up and sort of open our eyes wide. I think the, the more we flew, the more we saw these extensive canyons and fjords, in fact, deep inland, which showed that the ice sheet had once upon a time been much smaller. That raises the, the clear prospect that if it's uh, retreated inland in the past, that that's uh, clearly possible in the future. Uh, and more to the point, uh, we can tell from the geology that once you move past a certain coastal margin where it is now, the retreat is really quite rapid in, in geological terms uh, before it reaches an inland stable position. And we're talking about sea level contributions of well over a metre, two metres to three metres of sea level rise in this one catchment alone. That's comparable, of course, to the sea level rise uh, potentially in all of West Antarctica, which is around three to three and a half metres. It would make a radical impact, but over a time scale that we still can't define uh, very well at all. I mean, one of the problems we have is that policymakers um, are asking for information about what to expect over to the end of this century, and the IPCC report um, said that it was up to a metre or so, but then covered the uncertainties by saying there could be 
a few tens of centimetres more than that of sea level rise by the end of the century if processes we don't understand really well cut in. And they're actually the very processes that we feel that we're seeing in West Antarctica, at least at the moment. The latest estimates we're seeing put the plausible upper, low probability, but the plausible upper sea level rise at two metres or even more by the end of this century. Now, this is at a very low percentage probability, but of course we insure our houses um, against low probability events. And I think as we look at the future of the planet, we have to absolutely consider uh, what is plausible uh, by the end of the century and beyond. It's sort of a little bit split brain at times. So you've got this sort of simultaneous curiosity and relevance drive, uh, but then you step back from time to time and look at the, um, the implications of what you're learning for the planet. And it's quite a sobering thing. That was Taz Van Omen. For more on the East Antarctic, make sure to check out the feature in this week's Nature. And check out the Nature podcast from the 31st of March 2016 for a discussion on how scientists are trying to pin down Antarctica's role in future sea level rise. Finally this week, it's the news chat and two amazing physics stories brought to us today by Lizzie Gibney. Hello, Kerry. Now, first, we are up for a bit of muon magic, as you told me. The subject line of the email was, as it was circulating around, as you were writing this story, uh, what is a muon, first of all, before we get to why they're magical? Great question. So a muon is very much like an electron, which people are probably more familiar with, except it's much, much heavier. So it's 200 times heavier than an electron. It's kind of like a, we call it like a cousin to the electron. And they're hard to spot, easy to spot, all around us? Um, They don't uh, exist very naturally on Earth, um, but you do get them coming in in cosmic rays and you can produce them in accelerators. And why are they magic then? (laughs) Well, because when we've been doing studies of muons over the years, a very particular property called its magnetic moment doesn't seem to match up with theoretical predictions. And one possible reason for that is because we're not taking into account some whole other new particles that are out there. So this might actually be a kind of lever that we can use to to crack open the standard model, which you've probably heard me talk about before, which is a, a great theory, very, very successful theory that describes particles and all their interactions used basically throughout particle physics but which we know is incomplete, which doesn't account for dark matter, which doesn't really account for gravity, you know, really quite important things. So we've got the standard model. It's not enough. We're looking to go beyond it. And muons may help us. And physicists have tried to look at them before and analyse their moment, their properties, to see if that could shed any light on the standard model. Exactly. So measurements of the muon have been going on since, I think, about the late 1950s, uh, and they've been getting better and better. And at the same time, the theoretical predictions have been getting better and better. And about 15 years ago, the Brookhaven experiment, which was a very similar setup to this new one that we're going to be talking about, found that... When they when they did all their calculations, there was quite a difference between the experimental result and the predicted result. Now, 
because of the statistics involved, the number of muons they could use, that wasn't statistically significant. It was about 3.4 sigma for people who care about that kind of thing. So there was a there was a chance of, I think, about one in a thousand that it could have just cropped up in, in the noise and it doesn't actually mean anything. But now we're in a position where we have a new experiment ready to go, which should be able to uh, take data from many more muons and it's more precise. At the same time, theoretical predictions have got a lot better. So there's a chance that now if the, that kind of anomaly remains, we'll be able to show it beyond doubt and then we'll know something really weird is going on. This new experiment is at the Fermilab facility in the States and it's launching, starting, heating up uh, next month, May. Exactly. So muons will start circulating in May. They'll have a little bit of time for commissioning, kind of calibrating the experiment. And then they hope but by the end of 2018, end of next year, they may well have something exciting to report. And can I tell you a bit about the crazy way in which these muons are telling us something? Yes, please. Okay, so what what we're doing is, as I mentioned, it's, it's measuring the magnetic moment of the muon. It's influenced by these things called virtual particles, which are any kind of regular particle, think photons, quarks, they can pop in and out of existence um, as long as they do it in a very, very short time, blink of an eye. And that's happening all the time around everything. And when they do these calculations, when the theorists put pen to paper to figure out what this magnetic moment should be, they have to take into account all of those virtual particle processes. The question is, is there some other particle or some other particles which are in that virtual particle soup that we should be taking into account in our calculations that we're not? Here they still have a question, the identity of the particle, but they will at least be able to sort of tell if it might be if it's if it's missing. They can tell if something's missing. So they will they will say for sure we know there's something going on that we can't account for. And then we'll have to wait another 15 years to build another piece of kit to find out. Well, who knows? So the LHC may directly find them. I mean, there are there are lots of theories that say for instance they maybe ex- exist um, at energies that the LHC can find, but they are very rare. So they're only going to crop up once the LHC has been running for, you know, a decade or whatever. They might slowly work their way out of the statistics. Virtual missing particles buried in a pile of statistics. Now we're going to move on. You were saying that the way they're looking for these muons is basically kind of looking at the wobble rather than smashing them into each other. But we are going to go back to some other physicists smashing something into something else uh, because the spacecraft Cassini is just now starting its final descent uh, to crash into Saturn. Exactly. So Cassini's been there for 13 years and now, yeah, it's the five-month countdown. And um, we've got a great story this week from my colleague Alex Switzy, um, which is looking at the science that's going to do over the next five months. And as we've seen with previous missions, the great thing about this is when you're coming to the end anyway, you can do things that are a little more daring that you might not do at the start of a mission. Um, And in this case, Cassini is actually going to fly between Saturn and its inner rings and hopefully find out a whole the answers to a whole load of, of mysteries in doing that. What has it been able, in the brief sort of highlights so far, what, what has it been able to find in the time it's been orbiting the planet thus far? Well, it's taken some, some fantastic pictures. There's a high-resolution camera on Cassini. In fact, one uh, picture was really nice. It took looking back through Saturn, backlit by the sun, with Earth as a little teeny tiny pale dot very far away. Um, And it studied uh, Titan, so Saturn's largest moon, which has these bubbling methane lakes and the planet's magnetic field and a whole raft, really, of measurements. And what will it be able to do in the next five months then as it uh, descends towards the planet itself? 
Uh, one thing it's going to look at are these strange um, kind of propeller-shaped uh, gaps in the rings, which they think might be caused by little tiny moonlets. So it's going to take some uh, some pictures of those. Um, Saturn's got loads and loads of moons, so like you know they of all different uh, shapes and sizes. Um, it's going to look at the chemical makeup of the rings. They're mainly made of ice, but there are some other substances in there. And then a big question that they want to answer is just how old are the rings and how did they form? And a way in which they're going to do that is they're going to they're going to get the um, gravitational field of Saturn and the mass of the rings, and use that to figure out kind of how big was this object that probably disintegrated to create the rings. All that and more to learn as Cassini dives around and towards Saturn in. In the coming months. Thanks, Lizzie, for those updates. Follow our ongoing coverage of Cassini's grand finale and find out more about muons at nature.com news. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy the show, why not recommend us to a friend or leave us a little review or rating on iTunes so that we can reach even more people who might like a weekly shot of science. Next week, we'll be taking a little break for Easter, so our next show will be dropping on April the 26th. If that's too long to wait, why not check out the entire Nature Podcast archive on our website, nature.com slash nature slash podcast. Till next time, I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.